Hey everybody, welcome to today's episode of Real Estate Disruptors. It's the end of the year. We don't have a live guest today. What we do have is Aaron, one of our top team members. He's the one that has to break down all our episodes, digest it at an even deeper level, and break them out into clips and snippets. So I think he understands our material better than anybody else. What we're gonna be talking about is some of our favorite episodes, as well as some of our favorite moments. So uh, what are some of your favorites throughout the year? Um. I think honestly, I would have to start off with uh, Ramon. He, his podcast, him and Rodrigo, when they came on here, they started the energy off. Probably the funniest podcast, <laughs> in my opinion. When you asked him, um, said, well, how was life before real estate? And, you know, he kind of gave you a very blatant answer, said, terrible. Uh, I feel like how a lot of real estate people feel. Mm-hmm. So, life before real estate was horrible. Mm-hmm. So, that was probably one of my favorite moments. And then I would just, I think I learned a lot also from just listening to these. Definitely. Um, David Richard, I know the way he was talking about how he sets up his bank account. I remember immediately after learning that one, it's one that I took in. I was like, oh, let me, let me try that out. So I put that into effect. And then TJ Dejani, he was very interesting, just talking about Airbnbs and automation. I didn't know a lot of things like that. Um, but I think those would probably be my, top, my part of my top three. Of course, Pace. Pace came in twice, actually, interrupting Tim Bross was funny. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah, he went on live, which was a cool moment. So we had a lot of people that like I was actually interested in meeting that mm-hmm. came on this year, and it was fun listening to them. Yeah, I can say for sure, you know, having Ramon and Rodrigo come on were some of my top moments. Uh, uh, it's funny you bring up the the life was, real, uh, was horrible for real estate. That was funny. <laughs> uh, for me, it was the fact that someone in the uh, YouTube chat specifically asked for for them to sing their mariachi <laughs> and then they did yeah and i didn't realize at the time how loud they were i mean i recognize that mariachi is typically pretty loud but people on the other side of the wall were asking after the show like what happened over there what was going on uh, during your podcast uh, i would also say you know there are a few other really favorable or memorable moments you know we had shane Ninen. he was the first person we handed a plaque to uh before we uh, jump into the questions there's two different things i want to do okay uh, out of the out of the north first is wanted to present this to you oh my goodness so we got this right here, plaque for Shane and Lauren Ninen. Oh my goodness! Oh my goodness! Millionaires. So we oh. didn't figure out the mic logistics. So okay. I'm gonna have to shake your hand from over here. We'll take yeah. some better pictures later on. Okay. Uh, live during the show. So that's really really cool. We had Matthew and Nicole Potter. So Matt came on, and then another time we recorded uh, handing them the plaques. But you know their journeys. It's We've been saying we want to create 100 millionaires. It's not lip service. You know, we actually do it. Uh, Ryan Zolan, he came on as well to recap what's going on. He had a killer, killer uh, first six, seven months of the year. I mean, the numbers he was sharing is like, man, like, how can someone I'm working with be kicking my butt this <laughs> badly? Um, and as far as favorite episodes, you know, it's really cool to have all our friends come on. You know, you mentioned uh, Pace Morby came on a couple of times. Uh, Ryan Pineda, you know, just sharing whatever craziness he's, he's up to lately. Uh, I would say as far as like, you know, for me, the thing that attracts me the most is our, our leadership principles. And so, you know, we're talking about leadership. We had um, Tim Brods come on, right? He talked a lot about his journey and how he went from like not being able to pay for gas to where he's at today with all these thousands of doors. 
uh, Eric Brewer talking about the importance of how to effectively lead your team. And he's faced adversity, you know, multiple times. He talks about the, that journey and the lessons he learned, how he's able to lead organizations today. Uh, we had Larry Yatch. I mean, the guy's a freaking Navy SEAL, right? The guy yeah. knows how to manage people. And he mentored my team, right? Like, I don't think we would make it, possibly make it through this crisis of a year in 2022 if we didn't have Larry Yatch on. Um, oh, and there was another person, Jimmy V, Jimmy Vreeland, right? The crazy person on part of the disruption is actually a very sane and normal human being. He talks about, you know, his journey from uh, former West Point and Navy uh, Army Ranger to, um, you know, how to translate, how that experience translates to, to real estate. Yeah. And I, why are you saying it made me remember some like stories? This one is a little bit um, newer one, so it might not get into the cut, but uh, Dean Rogers, when he came on talking about with Phil, Ro- Roger, Phil Rivers, pardon me, the uh-huh. $300,000 like tossing of the water bottle. I was like, <laughs> like sometimes I was just some pockets I listen to him. I have to tap my uh, coworker, Johnny. I'm like, Johnny, like, listen to this. Like, listen to this. It's crazy. So, yeah, that is insane. Yeah. And then we also had, you know, mentioned Dean. So, like, I don't have this podcast. If I didn't go with Vic Heredia, who was another guest this year, to Dean Graziosi's event, and we've been trying to get Dean Graziosi on the show for four years. And this was the year where we went to his office and recorded an episode inside his office. So that was pretty cool. That's like, you know, it's like a bucket list thing. So to be able to repay or pay homage to the person that helped us at least start this journey, that was a really cool experience for us. Those are our favorite moments for 2022. Hope you guys enjoyed this episode. I have to tell you that this is my favorite podcast I ever come on. I get so excited. This is the only podcast I get butterflies for. Well, I appreciate that. Bro, you're the best. So first time I came on here, I gave my cell phone number out. Okay. So that's not a tip for you guys to go look at that episode. (laughs) But I put my phone number out there. Not only did I get business partners from that, I got business relationships. I just bought a $3 million uh, multifamily deal, sub two and seller finance, because somebody got my phone number from your podcast. Yeah. You have made me millions of dollars, not thousands, not hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars since my first episode. Well, I appreciate that. And you've made a lot of people millions of dollars too. And people need to understand this. Like my, here's my strategy. Anybody that comes on your show, I'm like, oh, that's obviously somebody that's been vetted. Somebody that Steve knows is legit. I'm going to go become friends with that one person. And I'm going to see how I can make money with that person. Really good strategy. Simple strategy. Simple stra- strategy. And I mean, I don't really need to get in, you know, too deep with this as far as the social media component, right? Yeah. Uh, obviously, you're doing really well on social media, but you know, you're saying just you coming in on and just giving your phone number has made you millions of dollars. I mean, how, what would you say to someone right now that is like, should I make content? Uh, get over yourself. One step one, get over yourself. Like there, you have everybody has something inside of them to benefit somebody else. And I think the biggest reason why they feel like they don't is they think that everybody is looking for a a full book and that you're just one step ahead of them. So I'm like, guys, if you're just one chapter ahead of somebody else, like you've done one deal or you've cold called a hundred hours, you've never got a deal, then tell people that. Just show people the genuine authenticity. You're one step ahead of them. And that's all they need to know is that one next step. So forget about the imposter syndrome, forget about all that kind of stuff and post. I I look at it this way. If I'm driving from Arizona to California and I'm hungry, how do I know there's a place to eat in the middle of the desert? Well, there's a sign sticking up maybe two, three miles down the road. I'm like, oh, great. Meanwhile, if none of these hamburger joints or these sandwich shops 
had any signs, I would just drive right yep. by, by them, not knowing that they actually had, had a they problem. They didn't let us know they were in business. Right. So throw up the damn golden arches, guys. And the golden arches in this business is social media. It is your business card nowadays. I saw a clip that you had posted. Uh, I'm assuming someone on your team posted, right? But that was a great clip. It was you and Brandon Turner with some uh, video mm. event. Yeah. Right. Talking about dating versus marriage. Right. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, actually. So first episode I did with you was a little over three years ago. I give my cell phone out and I said, if you guys need help closing deals, you guys need help with whatever creative finance deals, going on appointments, just let me know. I'd be happy to help you. So Cody Barton, my business partner, shoots me a text. Didn't know me at the time. He just saw me on the show and he's like, oh my gosh, that's exactly what I need. Okay. So Cody and I go and sit down in a McDonald's, ironically that I'm, th I'm bringing up the golden <laughs> arches. We go and sit down in a McDonald's, literally, he pulls open a laptop and he goes, Pace, I've got warm leads. And I go, prove it. Okay. So he gives me these leads. I'm sitting there again, guys, in a, in a McDonald's. I fly the next day to a Mark Evans event. And as I'm stepping out, taking breaks from the Mark Evans event, I'm making calls to his leads. That weekend, in two days, Cody and I made $40,000 together because he's like, here's the leads. I closed the deals, right? And immediately we were like, whoa, this is a great vibe. Mm -hmm. We should partner. Yeah. But we didn't do that. We dated for six months because you want to wait for people and their true nature to come out after about six months because when you first meet people, their guard is way up and you don't know who the real person is until they get that late, that laziness. Mm -hmm. So it's why you also shouldn't propose to anybody until you're at least dating six months. So for me, Cody and I dated, we just JV'd on everything that we did. And then after about six months, we looked at each other and said, man, we, this is great. Yeah. This JV has made us both a lot of money. We like working together. We actually look forward to looking or working with each other. And we're constantly in competition to see who can outwork the other person. And here we are three years later, it's the same exact thing, constantly trying to outwork each other. He always loses, but he still tries. Yeah. I love Cody. And I got my partner from you, actually, from the show. Again, Steve Trang has made me millions of dollars. So dating, always, I would say six months of JVs before you go into a partnership. Uh, we did an event. Uh, it's been a while. It's been a hot minute. <laughs> so let's kind of go real quick through the early parts, right, okay. about your journey, and then we'll get into, like, where you're at today. So, okay. First is what got you into real estate? The recession. <laughs> so I jumped in when everybody else was jumping out. I had just gotten a degree from ASU in realty studies and the market took a massive shift and I learned how to do short sales extremely quickly and started doing those and realized within about three months that I was one of the few people on the planet that could actually get them approved at that time. Yeah. So that was the quick and dirty jumping into real estate and just kind of took the bull and just ran with it at that point. So what's a short sale? Short sale. <laughs> uh, might see some more of those starting to, starting to come to fruition. <laughs> it might. Um, what it is is it's where a homeowner owes more on the home than it is worth in its current condition. So example, you have a $300,000 mortgage. Maybe the home's only worth two fifty dollars in its current condition. We submit a packet of paperwork and negotiate with the lien holder to approve the sale at the market value. Yeah. And the more recent ones you've done, I think when we've talked about it, was buying someone buying a house with VA loan. VA loans. Um, we're also doing a ton of reverse mortgages right now. Uh, home really? equity conversions, yeah. We're doing a lot of those because the baby boomer population is 
you know, they're at that age. Mm-hmm. And um, a lot of them have taken out the reverse mortgages, which in turn leaves a substantial debt on the property. And then when they pass, their heirs are kind of stuck with it, for lack of better words. So we're working out short sales on it, cleaning it up. Property goes, you know, down the line and then ultimately gets resold generally to, you know, an owner occupant. Yeah. So this was 2007, or 2008. Uh, 2008. 2008. So that's when we first connected. Um, and so you were doing short sales then. And actually, I talked to people here or there. They're like, hey, you know, I got a situation where it's there upside down. It's like, oh, talk to my short sale guy. It's like, you have a short sale guy? <laughs> like, there's still a short sale guy out there. That is me. Yes. <laughs> How many short sales are you doing right now? Uh, right now, I think we have in queue, I want to say it's over 100 that we're, still that we're working on right now. Yeah. So, I mean, we're still, we're doing them still, just not at, not at the 08, 09, 2010 numbers, but we're still doing a lot. And we are starting to see some trickles of certain areas where there's a little bit more of a concentration of them. Again, a lot of that goes to like the reverse mortgages that we're seeing right now. Okay. So you have a reverse mortgage or you just don't have enough equity. Master guy. I'm so, your guy. Uh, how many have you done total? Short sales? Yeah. Between uh, my wife, and who's my business partner, and myself, and our transaction manager, Marissa, one of the greatest in the game. Um, we've done over 18,000 since 2008. 18,000 short sales. Yes. Okay, so if someone has a deal where there's not equity, how do they send that to you? Usually what I say is just go ahead and send me an email with property address, preferably the bank information and kind of numbers, what you think it's worth, what, um, what, uh, what you think it's worth, and then ultimately what's owed on it. From there, generally, we're going to know within about five minutes whether or not it's going to be something that we're going to be able to work through as a short sale. Email address? Matthew at stunninghomes.com. Yeah. So for those of you guys that don't know, like, I got the chance to be the guy known for short sales. I go out there, promote. It's like, guys, if you're upside down, let me list your properties. And then I would just have Matt do all the work. So it was a great situation for me for many years. It was. Absolutely. And I'll never forget when we sat down, had lunch, and you were like, this is what I want to do. And I'm like, yeah, I'm all in. Let's go. Yeah. And, well, here we are. And back then, you were getting paid 1% on my $60,000 transaction. So $600 for the banks for for months. Four of us to split. Before you to split. (laughs) Yes. Okay. So what are we going to do as far as our team? Our acquisition strategies are going to change. So we've been doing cash first really cash only, right, uh, for our wholesaling team. That's what we've been doing for the last um, four years is cash options only, right? So what are we going to do? We're going to be offering novations more often. So we're going to offer cash first and then novations. But if novations doesn't work, whatever doesn't, if they can't turn it into a deal, they got to turn it in. And what's it turning in? I'm going to talk to them. I'm going to talk to the homeowner figure out why cash didn't work, why innovations didn't work. And at that point, we're going to start pitching creative offers. So that's option number three, right? So cash first, then innovations, then a creative offer, and finally a realty referral. So that's how we're going to modify our acquisition strategy uh, strategies. We basically need to come in with more than one option. We're going to come in with multiple options. Again, figure out what the situation the seller is in, what the ideal outcome looks for them, and then come in and offer cash, offer novations, um, creative offer, and finally uh, a realtor referral. Now that's probably not rocket or uh, a revelation for you guys, right? A lot of you guys may be doing that already. 
but what is definitely going to be changing is our disposition strategies. Here's the reality. Uh, our flippers that we've been selling to, our wholesalers and flippers that we've been selling to for the last two years, I mean, it's been really easy to sell. Like, our disposition guys didn't really have to work that hard to sell a property. I mean, our best disposition strategy is posting on Instagram, right? So it hasn't been that hard to sell the deal. But right now, flippers' appetites have changed. Uh, when they were usually, before, they were willing to pay 80, 85%, sometimes as high as 90%. Now they're saying they need to be a 65 to 70%. That's not going to work for us as a business. Uh, hard money lenders, they've changed their terms overnight. Again, totally understandable. I understand where the flippers are coming from. They got to price their risk because they can't pay what they were paying before. Of course, I get that. Hard money lenders, either their funding has dried up or you got to put more down or you got to pay more points or you got to pay a higher interest rate. So hard money lenders are becoming um, uh, not as great of a partner as they were before. And again, I totally understand where they're coming from. And one of the things that our disposition team needs to start doing is create relationships with different hard money lenders, right? You find other people that we can partner and buyers with. Uh, we're going to start reaching out to realtors. Um, I think that uh, right now, uh, as flippers, and we don't really deal with many, as many buy and hold people in the Phoenix market, but uh, as our buyer pool or buyer appetite changes, we need to be more proactive. We're going to start reaching out to realtors. So uh, finding realtors that have sold homes nearby, right? Uh, finding the top realtors in the market, reaching out to them and offering them off-market properties. Now, here's the thing. A lot of realtors don't want to hear from investors like us. They really don't. And that's fine, right? We move on. We're going to find the realtors that want to work with us, that want to hustle, that want to uh, do more business, especially in a market that's slowing down. So uh, that's one thing we're going to be adding. The other thing is if a flipper needs to buy a property at 65% for it to make sense for them, they're not our buyers. So you guys have heard us talk about on our role plays, on our scripts, that if a seller says, I need you to pay this price, well, I'm not your seller, right? Uh, or I'm not your buyer. Well, here's the same thing here. If you need to buy this house at 65% for it to make sense for you, you're not our buyer. And I'm going to take those deals down myself. Why would I sell it to someone else at 65% and sit here while I'm really hustling really hard, right? spending the money on marketing and so on, I try to sell this deal at 65%. For us to be able to sell a deal at 65% and make money, we need to be buying it at 55, 60%. And I'm not saying it can't be done, but the deal volume, the number of deals we're going to do per month is going to change drastically, right? To the point where we might be out of business. So uh, for us, this is how we're going to pivot. No, how do you pitch a innovation agreement? Um, do we have time for that? I can probably knock it out in a couple seconds. Go for it. Less than a minute. So here's the bottom line. Um, if you know anything about negotiation, Steve will tell you that you had to lead with a price anchor. Um, when you lead with a price anchor, um, behavioral science will tell you if someone was thinking 100 and you price anchor them at 30, you've modified their expectations about where they're going to end up. So you need to lead all of your wholesale appointments with a price anchor. If that person has made the decision that they've exhausted negotiations and your max allowable offer, let's say, is 70 and your clients is 100, what you're going to say to that person is, hey, Steve, um, if it's okay with you, I'd like to share um, a really cool program that we started not so long ago um, to help clients get more equity out of their home. Um, I'm not 100% sure that this property in your situation would qualify. Um, you might not even be interested, but it's called our equity protection program. And really myself and the owner of the company realized that 
and you might not know this, but eight out of 10 people that I meet with um, say, yes, they'd like to do a deal with me, but they say no to my price. And um, as a salesperson, that's just, that's hard. Eight out of 10 times I'm striking out, right? If I was in baseball, I'd get sent to the minor leagues. Mm -hmm. But um, so I sat down with the owner and I said, you know what? Um, we got to figure out a way to pay these nice people more money for their homes. Um, but I do understand that we need to maintain the integrity of the investment. I mean, we're investors, right? And uh, first the owner laughed at me and threw me out of his office and took away my preferred parking spot at the office. And then I just put my, my, my fist down and I, I'll, I'll go like this and I'll go, listen, this, we have to do this for two reasons. One, we have to help more people. And in our company, that's part of our core values, right? It's part of our purpose. So it's easy for us to, to say that and, and know that we mean it. And number two is as a salesperson, like, I just can't strike out nine times out of 10. It's, it's just killing my, my mindset. It's just, it's hard for me to scrape myself up every day and say, all right, I'm going to come back in tomorrow and nine times out of 10, I'm going to strike out. So we came up with this equity protection program and it only requires two things from you. Um, a little bit of flexibility on providing me reasonable access. We don't say showings. Mm -hmm. We say reasonable access because showings is a listing. Reasonable access is an investor relationship. And then we need access to put the property on the open market. We say open market, not MLS, because MLS sounds like, why wouldn't I just list it? Which is what 95% of investors, when I explain novations to them, they go, why wouldn't they just list it? Um, it's because we position and we pitch it. And, 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 and then here's the other part. If you've done a good job over the course of your sales appointment, which is 30 to 60 to maybe 90 minutes long if you're in person, they actually should want to do business with you right. by not presenting them with an option that allows you to make a reasonable profit as an investor and get the money out of the deal that they need to have it make sense. You're actually doing that client a disservice. Matt Andrews, who works with us very mm -hmm. closely, says the only reason you wouldn't do novations is because you don't know how. Right. Right. So that's how you pitch novations. And then Steve's heard me before, but I don't want to get too deep is then I tell him that I'm basically going to bring the property to the market with four different options as is, but because I understand construction, if someone comes to me with a problem, I can fix it. I've heard you say loud and clear, Steve, that you want to sell it as is no inspections. The second option would be someone might want to come and buy this house from me, right? And they'll buy it the way it sits, but they want to do a kitchen. Now that kitchen, they're going to know costs $15,000 retail, but because of my relationships with contractors and my understanding of construction, I can probably get that kitchen done for $10,000. Now I've made a little profit on the upgrade that the buyer selected, not on the purchase of the property because you've done such a good job squeaking all of that equity out of the deal. Third option would be is maybe they want a kitchen and they'd like that roof done. You and I talked about that it might last for two years, but it might last for 20 a lot of people in this price range are just going to want the security of knowing that that roof's going to last for 20 years. Same deal. Yep. They might think the roof costs $15,000, which it does, but because of my relationship with contractors and my experience in real estate, I'm able to get it done for 12. Now I've made another very small but reasonable profit on those upgrades, not the purchase of the property because you've done such a good job squeaking all the equity out of the deal. The fourth option is, and Boy, I hope this doesn't happen because it's a it's a really big pain in the butt. Is they might come to me and say, Steve, I'll buy this house from you, and I want it fully renovated, and you name your price. 
Problem is, is they're good, we're probably going to make good money on that, but it's going to take six months. They're going to show up at the job site every day. They're going to want to pick out literally every light fixture, and then 50% of the time, something happens with the deal. They get upset, and the deal's off. So we only do it if we get a really big deposit, and we're doing it well after you and I have settled up. Yeah. So if we do that and you allow me those two things I talked about, I can bring the property to the market with those four options. It gives me a distinct advantage over every other house that's on the market. Because if you go look at the neighbor's house, I'm sure it says, here's the price, here's the condition, take it or leave it. Mm-hmm. Where I'm saying, hey, pick your options, one of these four, yeah. right? And then we put right in the, the public remarks, ask agent about possible renovations. And then here's the the, 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 the reality of it. 99% of the time, we don't do any of those four. Right. But we're open to it. And then when buyers come to us and they ask about renovations and we tell them we need a big deposit and we tell them we're only going to do the renovations after, they go, okay, we'll take it as is. Yeah. Right? So 99% of the renovations we do, we only do punch list style appraisal repairs. Um, Ingrid Hernandez, uh, she uh, mentioned that she prefers sub two and retail subtail versus novations. She had an issue with it where her novation, where the seller got kind of squirmy. So have you ever done subtails where you're doing sub two and retail? I have not, but I, in my experience, it's much easier to get someone to work with me. And again, I think one of the things that we got to clarify is up until we've really been teaching and preaching this version of Novations, mm-hmm. what everybody else has done before is, is, is not the same. Right. Right. It's just so... I would tell you to revisit Novations. Your experience previously might have been negative because of that form of Novations, which included rehab and all that stuff. But, like, if I'm looking at it from a consumer perspective, I'm much more likely to be squirrely when I'm trusting you to make my mortgage payment for 12 years than I am saying, hey, we're going to settle up in 90 days and I need reasonable access to be able to bring this property to the open market in the next 90 days. You shouldn't have too much trouble with sellers getting squirrely um, particularly if you're being very transparent. And that's one of the things I love about Novations is I'm saying, I already told them I'm going to list it. I'm going to try and work one of these four deals, and I'm going to do my best to make profit on someone that comes along and makes me an offer to buy your home. There's zero confusion about what my plan is when that property goes on the market versus the normal wholesale where it's like I'm bringing my partner or my contractor, and it's this sort of gray area song and dance about whether you're actually buying the home. Do you really have the cash? Are you going to settle on time? Um, so one of the things I love about Novations is it's very transparent. Um, and sellers generally just don't get squirrely. Right. So really, you know, uh, stuck with me is desired end states, right? Yep. Commander's intent. So we're going to talk about it later on, but can you just share real quick how commander's intent or desired end state applied in that situation so we can Later, talk about how it applies in real estate. The that was a unique. That wasn't one of our normal missions, right? right? This this was a big mission, a really big mission. This mission. So the U.S. has battle plans. Uh, like, if all of a sudden North Korea was going to invade South Korea, there would be there's already a you know a book this thick with the plans for what we're going to do. Uh, this particular mission, securing the oil platforms, ever since the first Iraq war, when Saddam had destroyed all the oil in Kuwait, like we knew mm-hmm. he wasn't full of crap when he was yeah. talking about what he'd do, uh, we had, there's plans for this, right? So those plans are very specific. They fit into the overall battle plans. 
So that one is that was a very static mission for us, meaning there's an oral platform, go take it. Uh, most of our missions are not static. It's a very dynamic environment that we work in. It's ever-changing, highly dynamic, and lots of risk. With that type of environment, our commanders can't tell us, go, like, go take that house. Mm-hmm. Like they said with this, like, go take the platform, make sure it doesn't get damaged. Uh, from there, most of the time, if they were to tell us that, the world would change so much, even just on the way to the target, that we'd be in trouble. So most of the time, we are tasked with what they refer to as commander's intent, where he would tell us what it would look like, the battle space would look like after we were done, as mm-hmm. opposed to what we were doing. And that commander's intent gave us the flexibility to adjust strategies and tactics in that ever-changing environment while we're executing the mission. So it's the best way I liken to it is it's the reason why we're going out, not what we're going to do or how we're going to do it. Yeah. So the objective as to why this objective is important versus what the exact outcome looks like. It's literally most of the time, especially like in business, you're telling people what to do. And mm-hmm. a lot of times people are telling people how to do it, right? Which is two layers too deep. Mm-hmm. Our, our commanding officer would tell us why we're doing something. It was our job to tell him what we were going to do to produce that fulfill on his why. Yeah. And then he would give us an okay, a, did we get it right? So we, he would never tell us strategy. It was yeah. our job to identify strategy. Yeah, but there's always like, here's why it's important. Yep, why is it yeah. important? That's it. Here's the why. We showed up with the what. And then as, a, as an officer, my job was the what we were going to do. My guys, my leaders, my, my enlisted guys, they told us how we were going to get done. And yeah. my job was to follow them, not actually lead them. Uh, one of the things that, and I know we're kind of, we're kind of going a little bit differently than how I, I would normally do this, but uh, you know, like I said, it's been instrumental for my sure. business. Uh, the things that uh, it's always felt like top-down management, right? Like, hey, Larry, how many dials did you make today? How many yep. contracts did you have, right? And it just feels like I'm pulling this out of you, right? Yep. And it feels, and it feels like micromanaging, mm-hmm. right? And the things that we've learned very recently with you guys is that it's not me requesting this of you is you're reporting it to me my job to over report right your job to over report and then with when i have the intel now i can make decisions on the business because yeah. i have all the intel on the front lines it's a completely different way of looking at business the it's the it's the concept again one of if i was to say what was like i talked about responsibility and feedback and planning but the concept of leadership versus management was ultimately one of the biggest paradigm shifts that I had. When I go as a junior officer, so I come straight out of training, I'm out of training, I go get assigned to a team, I get assigned to a platoon, I walk into that platoon space, I would be the second at maybe the third highest ranked person in the whole on that platoon, which means I'm very high at the top out of 16, 17 guys, yet I know the least. Right, so I show up absolutely brand new, but they have to call me sir, and I can tell them to do anything, and they have to do it as long as it's a legal order. Mm-hmm. If I go into that environment pretending like I can lead them to success, I'm gonna fail. I'm, it's gonna be dangerous. My job is to create a space for them to lead me to success because they have the knowledge, the experience, they have the confidence of of previous action. 
to get stuff done. Yeah. And so there's this real change that going into an organization and pretending like you know how to lead people to success is usually very wrong and ultimately very limiting. Whereas my job was to create the space for, for my guys to lead each other and me to success. That okay. is when my job is to create leaders around me, I'm infinite. When my job is to lead others, I'm very finite. Right. And his conversations I've had with Jaden, right? He's my, uh, yep. now he's my CAO, right? Uh, Coordination of Action Officer. Yep. And like we've had conversations like, you know, who reports to who exactly? Like, look, like right now, you're there to support them so they can be successful. Yep. That's your responsibility, right? You're not leading, you're not directing, right? You're just giving them the space. Creating the space. To be successful, right? Another, Create, enable, support leaders. That's yeah. it. And then the other thing too. And ultimately what's crazy is you as the CEO, right? As mm -hmm. the most senior person will often report to him. <laughs> Feels that way, yeah. You should, right? Yeah. Like, because at a certain point, he's going to need to direct your action yes. to get stuff done. And therefore, he's leading you, even though you're the most senior person. Right. That's how a SEAL team operates. Yeah. So it's we got uh, Gav Bear, and he is newly married. So he wants to know should he rent or should he try to buy a house and rent out the basement? Well, I'm a huge fan of the house hacking strategy, which is if you don't know what it is, simply put, you buy it. A duplex, you live in one, you rent out the other, um, and you, there's a whole bunch of versions of that. Mm -hmm. So I'm more of a fan of that. If you if you can qualify for a low down payment loan, if I were to go back, I say this very much often, I would buy the biggest, most beautiful fourplex that I could afford on a low money down um, loan. FAJ financing in you know primary of Southern California. That's what I would do first. If I yeah, yeah. I, I read about that in Robert Greene's book, uh, Multiple Streams of Income. Right, a long, long time ago. Never executed it, but it was like before it was, you know, house hacking. You know, uh, these these gurus talking about it many, uh, many, many years ago. Uh, you have the same opinion? Yeah, I would agree. I mean, it, I, I'm personally buying a house hack. I'm not, you know, recently married, but I've been dating for, you know, eight or nine years now. And so I could see myself being in that shoes, you know, in a couple of years down the line. And the main thing for me was before I got married, I wanted to make sure that I had a house, I had that stability. And so, um, you know, I, I would agree that if you get a house hack, then you can have somebody else helping you pay down that mortgage. And yeah. if you're a newly married couple, if you're you know newly expecting a child and you have those other expenses coming down the line, having that other person help you out with your, your mortgage expense goes a long way. And, and a quick quick story on that, I actually house hacked my apartment and I didn't own a little bit, right? <laughs> I did Airbnb on the other bedroom. It was a two bedroom, one bath apartment. And it helped me become an investor because I was not paying that additional 1200 rent that was being paid by the Airbnb. And so I would be able to save more money and all that. So there's so many ways you can do that. And, yeah. And, yeah. And it's, it, it sounds more complicated than it really is, right? Because like when I was living in La Jolla, I was renting a three-bedroom apartment and I got the master and I, my two buddies rented other two rooms, right? That's for more or all intents and purposes what house hacking is, just you're getting a mortgage versus you're splitting the lease uh, a few different ways. Yeah. Yeah. And essentially, you guys were paying that guy's mortgage, but he just didn't even need to live in the house because you guys were paying it. So yeah, no, pretty much, right? So um, now the the challenge then is he's got newly married, and if his wife's okay with it, cool with it. That's that's great. Challenge is if you know we try to buy it today, a fourplex, and getting the wife to agree to living in a fourplex might be a challenge. But, and that's why I said the biggest because the, there's a fourplex where there's tiny units, and there's fourplex where it's almost like four houses on one lot. Yeah. Right. Or like a four thousand square foot 
fourplex that you know. That's a good large. point, right? Because so, I I remember so people didn't think like of a uh, multifamily, and I'm next to my neighbor. No, there's no. some there. Like you buy a duplex where it's a whole different lot. You know, they're over on that side. It's like two different houses. So. Yeah, I remember now thinking back in the Orange County, my wife's family. Yeah, they live in a duplex. And I was like, this is a duplex. This is not. These are two separate units. Yeah, these, like, yeah. this is not a duplex. But yeah, yeah that's a really good point. Duplex sometimes has a connotation of like the shared wall. And like mm -hmm. Alex said, you could have a fourplex with four buildings, their own four garages, just right. on the same parcel. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, then that would work. That's a great point. Uh, Mubarak. Ed's right. This is not easy. Mm -hmm. um, going back to me jumping back on the phones and putting a headset on. Um, especially for acquisitions like uh I, i'd hate to say very few are cut out for this but very few are cut out for this for an for an extended period of time and doing it consistently yeah um so i would say you need to work on what's up here mm -hmm. because um ultimately you where you're at in your headspace is going to be the results that you get are you a bit of a sadomasochist in that you enjoy cold calling I hate cold calling. So you hate cold calling. And yeah. I want to bring this up because you're, like, you're in a way looking forward to cold calling. Yeah. But you hate it. Yeah. So I like, I still get a rush today. Mm -hmm. When I get to the close, I get butterflies. I get the, the bubble guts. <laughs> like I still get it today. Yeah. When that feeling goes away, I will ultimately have to put the phone down. Yeah. But so, I, I love it. So you don't look forward to picking up the phone and calling, but you really enjoy the feeling of the of the close, the victory. I, I like the whole, I like, so I, I, I preach the one uh, five step, my five step sales process. It's intro, uh, fact, fine, pitch, quote, close. Mm -hmm. I love all of it. All right. So for everyone that's listening, let's dive a little deeper into each of the five steps. Yeah. So the intro. Yep. Let's talk about the intro. Quick and simple. Mm -hmm. You want to know who they are, who you are, the point of the phone call, and you want to set expectations, mm -hmm. right? And what I, on the intro, am trying to get people to do, because as we all know, these are not one call closes. Right. So we put- Unless a, I'm on it. Unless Tony's <laughs> on it, right? <laughs> so in the beginning, what I like to do every single time is I like to get the seller to grab a pen and a paper and start jotting information down. Mm -hmm. Because nobody else in the industry from what I'm seeing is even doing that. Correct. Where I want them to know the name of my company, I want them to know my name, I want them to have my phone number. So I, in our intro, and everyone in our office that's, that's, that's uh, pitching a lead, good lead or badly, because we don't know until we qualify it, the very beginning of the phone call, they're getting them engaged, saying, can you grab a pen and paper real quick and jot all my information down? So one, that's the intro. Mm -hmm. That Can you role play or, or say it? Yeah, hey, Steve? Yeah. Hey, Steve, this is Eric with TLC Homebuyers. How are you doing today? Uh, doing all right. Awesome. Ray, I catch you at a good time? Um, I got a minute. Awesome. So again, my name's Eric with TLC Homebuyers. Looks like your property was referred to us by one of our referral companies. They thought we'd be a good fit for one another. So what I'm going to do today, it's just real simple. I'm going to ask you a few questions about the property, see whether or not it qualifies to be put into our portfolio. Okay. Sound good? Sure. By the end of this phone call, Steve, I can promise you one of two things. We're either going to say, yes, it's approved, and I'll have an offer, mm -hmm. or I'm going to say it was uh, disqualified, and I'm going to have a reason. 
Okay. Okay. We can't buy every property, Steve. We come across a lot of them. So we are a little picky and we pick and choose what we're going to bring into our portfolio. You, uh, you grab a pen and paper real quick. I'm just going to have you drop some, drop some information down. Yeah, I can grab one. Cool. I go ahead, give them my first name, last name, name of the company. And then when we give them the, our phone number, we say at the end of the phone number, we say, just so I know you have that, right? Can you repeat the phone number? Why do we do that? It's because you can remember my name. You can remember the name of the company. But when I give you the phone number, I know you didn't memorize that. Mm -hmm. So what I'm, the reason I'm asking them to repeat that is to see if they're actually doing what I'm saying yeah. or asking them to do. Are they really engaged with the conversation? Right. Yeah, no, you can test to see if they're yeah. really serious. Yep. yep. Got it. Okay, so that's the intro. Intro. What's step two? Fact find. All right. Reason they're on the phone. So we, I, we have a, a rule in our office. It's the 10-minute rule. You can't terminate a lead unless you've been on the phone with them for 10 minutes. We get a lot of leads, but we don't get enough to where we can't spend 10 minutes with somebody. Right. So... The, the fact find is, I see that you were looking to sell because you're done being a landlord, Steve. Uh, how did you come across that information? Uh, according to the referral company that you chatted with, mm -hmm. that's what you told them. All of our leads come from their, uh, a cold call company. Mm -hmm. So we have, I'd say 50, 60% of the time, a motivation for it. Got it. So that's the reason I'm okay. saying this. Yeah. Um, so the, the reason I even bring up looks like you're not wanting to be a landlord. So what we do is we bring up the fact, looks like you don't want to be a landlord anymore because it was in the reason, right? Mm -hmm. So we bring that up. We parlay that into a third party story. Like, listen, the last two people that I helped out of their timeshare, very similar story. They had a granddaughter that had been living in the property. It's just showing that, hey, We've dealt We're with this. Deal. We've dealt with this before, and then we we come back to them to hopefully they'll open up. Of it's not just I don't want to be a landlord. What's behind that? Mm -hmm. So what's what's the real pain? Why don't you want to be a landlord? And I like the fact that you paused. And you just waited. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that's fact finding. Fact find. And then. And then from fact find, once they know who we are, we know who they are. We've gotten on common ground, right? Um, we understand their situation a little bit more. Then from uh, fact find to pitch, which pitch is where we talk about the house. Mm -hmm. I will ask um, if there's not a uh, asking if there's an asking price on our lead. I try not to bring it up. I want to hear what they say. And the reason I say that is um, I'm a firm believer that the hardest part about our job is the phone calls they got prior to them picking the phone up for me. Oh, yeah. And I know if I can put them through an experience they have not went through yet, a structured phone call, um, I, I already got a leg up on most of my competition. Yeah. So we go from uh, intro, fact find, and then before we go into pitch, we try to get a price out of them. By this time, we've been on the phone with them for like 10 minutes or so. And... It's, hey, Mr. Seller, in the event we can get to a number that makes sense for both of us, where do you think you would have to be? And then, ah, it's none of your business. <laughs> Completely understand. Usually, I like to see where you're at for a price point. Ultimately, I'm going to go back and they're going to give me a number. This isn't like a traditional real estate transaction. I'm actually working with you, mm -hmm. right? It's me and you against them in the back. So if you have a number, we can at least jot it down. I can kind of see where they're at. 
ah, it's none of your business. I want you to give me an offer. Cool. I just let it go. Then we go into the house. What, what we do again, we're trying to do what our competition isn't willing to do. And what do I mean by that? The questions they have answered a hundred times over is what's the age of your roof? What's the age of the AC? And what upgrades have you done? Yeah. They've answered it a hundred times. So we, what we do is we start outside. Tell us a little bit about the neighborhood. Kid-friendly, house to the uh, left of you, to the right of you, across the street. Are these rentals? Are they owner-occupied? How do you feel about your neighbors? You got any electrical lines hanging up in the, uh, you on a double yellow line? So we're trying to get them to talk about the neighborhood. Is it kid-friendly? Um, any vacant homes? Obviously, we slide in the roof AC, but we try to like do that at the end because mm-hmm. for us it's if they say it's heavy rental mm, let me put that into my system i'm not sure that we're taking any more properties that are heavy rental markets mm-hmm. this is for a fix and flip because at the beginning i said we're going to qualify right. your property so we go into the whole pitch uh and then we go inside the house um we use the line if you get a 20 30 40 thousand dollar check what would you spend it on um and then at the end of the pit or at the end of the 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 pitch for the house we always put every seller on two holds so it's hey appreciate giving me all the information what i'm going to do real quick is I'm just going to run back to the underwriters and see if where they're at. You know, they're going to tell me one of two things. Yes, we'll take it or no, we won't take it. Mm-hmm. So I'm either going to have a number for you or a reason. Mm-hmm. And so we put them on hold. Why do we put them on hold? We mute our phone and they're going to have a conversation they wouldn't have with you on the phone. Yeah. Was your wife there? No, she's at work. As soon as you put them on hold, honey, get out of here. They're getting ready to quote us. <laughs> The wife's there. <laughs> How much do you want for your house? I want to hear you first. You put them on hold. If they can give us 150, are we going to do the deal? Yeah. You got a number out of them. Right. So we go back. We start running our numbers, right? Do whatever you got to do for that. We do uh, two, three minute holds. So we're on hold. They're on hold for a total of six minutes. Someone's sitting on hold for six minutes. They're interested. They're committed. They're committed. Yeah. If they've grabbed a pen and paper, they wrote all your information down. They can repeat a phone number. They sit on hold for six minutes. I have a motivated seller on the phone. Right. Um, so we put them on hold. We come back. Mm, they're in or, uh, We don't even say they're in or say, I don't have good news or bad news. They actually have more questions about the property. Mm-hmm. So we always ask the same three questions. You save, save three questions in your, in your pocket, right? So you can pull them out. What are they? Foundation, AC, windows. Ask three. They say, uh, let's say the house is 1985, and you ask about the windows, are they original? And you come up, this is on your, uh, coming back from your first hole, and they say, uh, windows are original. Mm, I don't know. Let me put that in the system. Mm-hmm. So you start typing, right? They can hear your fingers type. I'm just letting them be- know in the back office. So then uh, we say, is there anything else that you think they should know? No. All right, boom. Put them on another hole. You sit there for three minutes and listen. And the, the holds are because you're going to be a fly on the wall. They don't know is there. Mm-hmm. The holds have been so powerful for us where, and, and this is just one, one instance, right? Where I had them on hold. What I was going to offer them on the second hold, 
the wife and husband were praying for a number that was $30,000 less than I was going to quote. Yeah. So the second hold, I made 30, 30 additional thousand dollars. So we get back on. Congratulations. It's the first property they've approved for me all week or all month or whatever. Mm -hmm. You know, we, I, we sell the sizzle, not the steak. All right. So it's, uh, it's Hollywood every time it's action. So, and then what we do, and I'm giving a lot of free game out here right now. So I usually charge for this stuff, uh, is every property that we get approved. We say, Hey, I want you to grab your pen and paper real quick. Cause they have, they've given me a virtual withdrawal number. Mm -hmm. Eric, what's the virtual withdrawal number? They've already moved the funds to another account for you. So it's attached to this number. What we do is we, we can use that for urgency in the end of, mm -hmm. Hey, if they say no, let me think about it, whatever. Because then now we, we're into the close. Mm -hmm. It's, uh, well, listen, I'm one of 15 acquisition managers on the phone. When they approve an offer, these funds are sitting here and it is attached to this, this virtual withdrawal number. So we'll, if you got to think about it, should I just tell the, the underwriters to push that money back? That way the company can have access to it again. And it, it, you get to gauge their level of interest. Yeah. So, um, and then listen, it's either yes or no, and then follow up and all that. So, and I will tell you, Steve, that is the script that I came up with. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. <laughs> it's, it's an amazing script. So if you think about, I mean, I love this and I've said this before. So if you've heard it, I'm sorry, but I think it's really important. I'll ask you, Steve, if you had the chance to go back and spend a day with your 20 year old self and you had a, you had a week to prepare, like mm. there's three topics, you get three topics, you have three hours with your 20 year old self. What are you going to share? How much would that be worth to you at this phase of your life? I mean, you can't even right. put a price on it. You can't put a price on it, right? And, and not just a financial price, like your heart, like about your relationship maybe with your wife or children or the business or when to start it or don't let these beliefs come in. Oh my God, when you get this age, you're gonna forget that childhood innocence and it's gonna go like all these things. And when I say that, I, and I've done it in front of hundreds of thousands of people over the years and there's only two answers. People are thinking money, say millions, mm -hmm. and people are thinking of other things, say millions, or it's worth everything. And you have to realize that there's people out there right now, kind of starting off where you once were in one of the areas of your life. Yeah. You know, people say, oh, I've only done three real estate deals. I don't know if I could teach other people. But what about the person dying to do one? Mm -hmm. Could you teach them the mistakes that you made and how you got in your first one and how you inspected it and where you got the money and how you cash flowed? Even if the first one didn't cash flow and mm -hmm. you thought it would, that's one chapter ahead. But that's with every area in life. What we're sharing with people, I mean, Tony and I have helped people in 4,500 different niches in 156 countries. You know, we had, we had a woman who was in business but realized she went through, and as men, we would have no idea, but she went through such hell and menopause and she was taking medicine and going to a doctor and then she went to naturopaths. She researched like crazy and she cured herself. She didn't have night sweats. She wasn't gaining weight anymore. She, her, her mind wasn't going crazy. And all of a sudden she realized, she's like, oh my God, how many women are probably going through this? They don't know where to go. I'm not a doctor. I don't have a following. I don't have an Instagram account, but I know how to get through menopause naturally. Now she's selling courses on how women can get through menopause naturally. She's crushing it. It's amazing yeah. to watch her. But that's one of thousands of people that are finding, you know, I learned how to sail. I learned how to play the piano. I learned how to do hair better. I learned made marketing better. Everything you could possibly imagine when you just realize if you're a chapter ahead, 
you have the opportunity to allow someone to go faster and there's no way this industry is going to a trillion dollars a year unless people are realizing, I don't wanna go back to college. That's general knowledge, that's mm -hmm. not working. I don't wanna learn on my own, that takes too long. Let me look around and find somebody who's already been there. Yeah. And that's what's fueling this industry. Of running a construction company, because like uh, we have, you know, it's a very therapeutic, right? We kind of share, we commiserate. Yep. You know, managing salespeople and so on. But I don't think anyone knows how hard it is to flip. You know, the one thing I, I hear from time to time is that contractors are crooks, right? They uh, are. <laughs> and, but I kind of wonder, is it because they're immor immoral or is it because they thought that since they are good contractors that they should be good at having a construction business and they don't understand sales, marketing, finances, books, and so on? Well, I was always really a businessman, not a contractor. Yeah. And I treat it as more of a business than what most contractors do. And, you know, there's a place for everybody. And when I say this, I don't, I'm not saying this because of anything, but a lot of contractors that actually own the companies, not the actual workers. It's an easy place for them to go say, hey, I own a business and get cash flow, right? And mm -hmm. be able to have cash in their hand, but they just don't know how to manage a business. They're great at construction, but don't understand the business part. And right. that's really the biggest failure in contractors. It isn't that they're bad people or crooks. They just don't know how to estimate. They don't know numbers. They don't know how to schedule, you know, and, and run balance sheets and look at profit losses. Cash flow management. All of it. Managing then, subs. It, all of it, you know. And yeah. one of the biggest things in my business is I, uh, or I have employees and I have vans. I refuse to hardly use any subcontractors. And then I can really control my destiny because when you're, when you're you know, having subcontractors, it gets hard uh, to rely on them because – Somebody else might pay them more money or do this, or they might not show up. Where my guys, they've been with me a long time. I know they're going to be there and they're going to show up. Yeah. So then going back to my theory, mm -hmm. they're not necessarily crooks that really they just don't know how to run a business. Do so you say that's more accurate? I, I would say that's real accurate. Yeah. I, a lot of contractors are really good people. Yeah. You know, they just, they don't have a lot of education. Um, their skill set is really with their hands, not with experience, you know, uh, using, you know, using their head would be a best way to say it. Cause a lot Numbers. of them just don't think, you know, they, they just don't want to educate themselves. It's construction is always known as an easy way to make a buck, right? Mm -hmm. It's everybody's fallback for an easy way to make buck. That's what a lot of the construction people are. So you've been in the wholesaling side, you've been in the flipping side, you've been doing this luxury development now. Mm -hmm. What are some of the parallels or what is, you know, or maybe let me ask this another way for someone that's watching that hates contracting, that doesn't appreciate, the work that is involved in being a contractor, can you uh, shed some light for them to know like why things are the way they are? Well, the, the first thing is, is if you get a good person, what you have to do is you have to put a little bit of trust in them, right? Um, typical thing as investors is they're scared of that somebody's gonna run off their money and they're not gonna get their job completed. If you don't take a little bit of risk and you don't like actually help somebody, a lot of these contractors don't have money so working with them financially and rewarding them that way um, really changes the the way that they work for you, you know. And being a contractor, my my biggest thing is is whoever pays the best is who I gave, you know, pays the best, has loyalty, and always keep kept me busy was the people that I never had problems with. Right. So when you're vetting a contractor and you're looking for a contractor, you need to look for the qualities in that person. Don't don't look at all of their flaws. And if they do have flaws, identify the flaws and see if you can, you know, take the flaws away from them. And you, you actually help them manage that right in the process of working with them. 
And usually you can gap that, and that's a great place to start with somebody. Gotcha. Okay, so um, what are some other things? Like, I'm, I'm sure you get complaints from here, here and there, yep. right? What are some of your top complaints uh, that either for your business or someone else in the contracting space? From the contractors or from the investor side, sorry? From the investors that are hiring you. So the, the biggest the biggest complaints I get is is there's never no bodies on the job and they're they're never on time. Mm-hmm. So if you say you're gonna be on time, I always uh, used to give like, hey, I think I'm gonna be done around here. And if I'd run into a snag, I'd be like, hey, I'm gonna be two more weeks, but it's gonna be right. And I and the communication always kept me, you know, in the safe zone because at least if I could call and they know I'm working on it, you're good yeah. to go. So yeah. it, the delays is really the biggest thing and no no people on the job. That's a constant problem for investors. Because when, when you pull up to your property and there's never nobody there working, you may not understand as the investor that, oh, well, you know, maybe the tile guy is busy on another job and he'll be here in two days. But their mm-hmm. first instinct is, why don't you have anybody on my job? It's not right. how it works, right? The, the scheduling things and when things run over, then everything else gets delayed if you don't have another crew available. Sure. Um, so... I guess the big thing to look at is if we're looking at the order of things mm-hmm. and if one thing's getting delayed, then it sets everything else back. Yes. It, it sets everything back. And you know, in my own properties right now, uh, I had a few delays um, with different things going on. And a couple of projects went, uh, you know, went sideways on me on my own projects and I'm the contractor. Okay. I have, you know, 28 assets worth $50 million and she, you know, she's doing all the design and I literally just told her, I'm like, look, nobody's going to like this, including our money partners and everything, but I have to stop the machine for two weeks and I got to get house one, house two and house three, 100% complete because they're just sitting there and I just have to do this two week delay in our entire thing. So I just had to push back my entire schedule on all these houses, two weeks. That's a lot of money when I'm paying 300 grand a month in interest. Right. So, yeah. But doing that, we just reset the machine and we move forward and it still happens to me. So it's going to happen to other people for sure. Yeah. So, uh, what was it? So there's nobody on my, at my, at my house. What was the other one? Nope. Nobody's at my house. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and, uh, not being on time, meaning if you say you're going to be done, you're not done. Yeah. Got it. And then what about communicating with a contractor? What, what recommendations would you give our listeners that are working with contractors? Um, what I recommend is, uh, when you're working with your contractors is, is build a solid relationship with them. Okay. Take them to one or two of your projects that you currently have going and set the expectation up front. Okay. Make sure that when they walk in, um, you should see that guy like checking things. I, when I go in a house and I actually have other contractors working for me now, I'll be like, what do you, what do you see in this house that is not up to your standard? There's gotta be something, right? Mm -hmm. So ask what their standard is and, and say, it's okay. Go ahead and tell me whatever, but make sure that their standard is what you want your standard at. Right. And they know that that's number one. And then they know up front what your expectation is. Uh, next thing is, is make sure that you, uh, get them paid no matter what it takes. And if you can do those two things and build that relationship and get them paid, you can do about anything with contractors. Yeah. Cause remember contractors quit showing up because they're out of money or somebody's going to pay them more. That's the 99% of the rules of why they don't show up. So let me ask you, have, did you come here in a jet? Uh, no, I'm, <laughs> I'm spoiled. Since I got the jet, uh, I actually had to bring my Mercedes Sprinter today. Oh, <laughs> the God. jet's getting service. It's in the hangar. I'm hope I'm hoping down to, hoping to fly down on Friday in it when yeah. we come down to Freedom. Gotcha. Oh, so you're gonna drive back and you're gonna fly back for Freedom? Yeah, I gotta fly back for Freedom. And I told her I'm like, my God, I, so we left this morning out of Vegas at like 4:45, and we had to go to Sedona to a flip. We had to go to Sedona and check out on one of our projects there. Yeah, so we were there, and then we drove here, and then I could drive home. So I left home at 4:45, and I'm gonna probably get home at seven, right? <laughs> I could have left at noon, come here, had lunch, did this, 
stopped at Sedona and been home by five. Yeah. So it takes me 14 hours I can do for five. So a jet. Mm -hmm. That's an interesting business. Yeah. So why do you have a jet? Well, number one, I do things that people tell me I can't have or I can't do. So I actually did it. I have that similar problem, but continue. Okay. Um, I actually did the jet just because people, I've been wanting one for like four years. And I, I told her, I'm going to buy a jet. She's like, oh my gosh. I didn't and, say, oh my gosh. You always say that. I did no, not. Okay. So, well, she about <laughs> killed me through it because it was taking me. Well, because me and then it was about 20 hours a week going into <laughs> him going through this process. It's not an easy process to acquire a plane and no. to get the financing and everything. And no. he figured out how to make it into a business model, actually. Yeah, so, so anything I do, it's like, I think it's anything like an Airbnb. If I do it, I want it, to, if I'm not using it, I want it to make me money. Mm -hmm. And um, last August, I said, I'm gonna go do it. I got turned down by six banks. They're like, you've never owned a jet. You, you don't know the cost of them. It wasn't really a qualifying part as it was a, um, Banks are really goofy with jets because like, you don't even have a business that really needs a jet. Mm -hmm. And um, my biggest thing was I knew if I got the jet, it gets attention. Okay. Attention's good. Right. It drove, it grew my social media brand, like tripled it, if not quadrupled it in the last mm -hmm. six months, just because of the jet. And then I knew that if I got that, that I could then advertise in my social media for opportunity. Yeah. And some of the biggest opportunities are now. Right. So I wanted to have a jet available that if the opportunity was there, I could get there. And it was also a mindset shift. I said, if I have a jet, I have to do big things because they're very expensive. Yes, they are. Um, so those were the two major things. And then I looked at it and uh, we're actually building a fleet of 12 of them now. And in the next 18 uh, months, we're hoping to have 12 of them in the air. And we're going to have, you know, uh, midsize, long range, you know, and then we'll have our smaller jets like we have now. We have a Dassault Falcon 50. So what is... What can one expect to pay to get one of those jets? Um, to get one of those jets, like mine, it's a 3,600 nautical mile, three engine, nine passenger, uh, two uh, pilots. You can look it up. It's Falcon 50. Um, for that, right out of a sea inspection, which a sea inspection means it's just went through all of inspections, doesn't have another major inspection or overhaul for six years. Mm -hmm. You can expect to pay about 2.5 to 3 million for that jet today. Mm -hmm. I got mine for 1.7, and it was at that stage. Distress sale? Uh, no off market, but uh, once again, my social media found that right. Got it. Um, and then you so can it's paying for itself. Yeah, it, it's very well paying for itself. And I actually made mine. We have uh, four pilots. It runs nonstop. Yeah. And two Sturdises. And we originally projected to get about thirty eight hundred an hour out of that, and we're getting like fifty five hundred an hour right now. So nice. we're making really good money. And the jet fuel is only about three hundred dollars difference from October to now, and it's basically stabilized. Um, and once I seen it, I was like, I can make almost more money with jets and do no work because I'm not in the aviation business. I'm just the investor now. Yeah. So I'm actually more excited about the aviation business than I am real estate now. I think yeah. it's got a bit, I think it's got a bigger upside because with COVID changed everything with aviation, right? And since it changed it, more people are doing it. And there's more people like going, well, like Carlos the other day is like, bro, if you have one, we was talking Saturday night to like one in the morning, me and him. And we were on the phone for three hours. He's like, bro, if you have one, he's like, all right, I got to look at this quicker, right? And then he, it was funny because two days prior, he, he made that post about it. And when I started looking at it, and now that people see me have it, I actually have people wanting to invest in my airline business. Mm -hmm. And it really doesn't take that much money, about 750 liquid, and you can get a jet. That's yeah. not that much money. And 
you'll have that money back in about 18 months and then it pays for itself and it's making you 50 to hundred thousand dollars a month. Yeah. I, uh, not in investing it yet. You know, I've just kind of played around, see what it's going to cost. Right. Mm -hmm. I was actually shocked for just a few hundred dollars. I can fly each way between here and Vegas. <laughs> right. It's crazy how yep. much more prevalent they are today. Yep. Right. It's not as crazy as it was, you know, years ago. And the cool thing is you can actually take a picture in front of your jet. It's yep. not a picture of you walking up into someone else's jet. It's a pretty yeah. good flex point. <laughs> yeah, it's a massive flex. So right. you're not talking about looking for ugly houses. No. You're talking about basically clicking on the images. Yeah. Okay. And, and the only reason I'm bringing this up, there was um, Carl Spielvogel, right? He's another uh, peer, a friend of mine. He's in Carolina. And he calls it like, a, what's it? Walking Polaris. And Polaris is just their GIS in, in, in that market. Okay. And they just, they find areas they like and just click around and just look for odd shaped pieces of land. Right. <laughs> and then they make offers. Yeah, right. So, um, so predominantly you're, you're, you built a $1.2 million business mm -hmm. and this is not to belittle this in any way. It's not an overly complicated system. No, that's what I love about it. It's, yeah. it's very simple. And uh, the reason we were able to get to the revenue that we did was I created a little system, realized I could then teach somebody else that system, mm -hmm. taught it to them. Then we taught it to, you know, the next guy I went, Steven, Paul, Dylan, and now Carlos is with us yeah. and just keep scaling through that way. Gotcha. So then in building this model, who would you consider to be the key roles within your organization to make this model, to make this model work? Uh, so I do a lot of, so all five of us are still in acquisitions. We still all make calls. I handle a lot of the transactional coordination and majority of dispo. Steven will help me with a lot of dispo and some of the TC stuff. And then the rest of the guys are just straight acquisitions. Uh, and we do cold call all, to, all the way through closing the deal. So we, we don't currently have any outbound callers other mm -hmm. than the team. Um, so you guys are pulling a list, throwing a triple line dialer or whatever. Oh, no, no. We uh, use cell phones. Uh, so we are having terrible response rates. So I went to T-Mobile and just bought everybody a phone and said, hey, all right, here we go. Here, everybody's got an iPhone. Mm -hmm. So now when sellers text back, they get the blue bubble. Mm -hmm. They know it's a real person. It's a real phone. And our contact ratios went through the roof. Okay. So everyone has a phone. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We went this model. Um, couple of years ago and it was great. Right. Um, and what we learned, cause we were, we bought the phone mm -hmm. and we attached it to a Mac. What we learned was we never burned the phone number with the iPhone. Right. We burned the Apple ID. Yeah. Cause yeah. we were trying to text from the, from the MacBook. Right. Didn't know you could burn an Apple ID. Yeah. So they will change it too. <laughs> if you call in really angry and say, why is mine showing up as spam? Mm -hmm. They're oh, we're so sorry, sir. We'll fix it. Yeah. Yeah. We don't do a lot of text blasting though. So that might be. Yeah. The... Yeah. We were, we were text blasting very particular lists. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I can see how that could go bad. Yeah. They were not happy. Okay. So everyone in your company gets a T-Mobile phone, mm -hmm. iPhone. Right. And they're manually typing in those numbers. Correct. And calling them. Yeah. Okay. So just for reference, how many dials can these guys make an hour with an iPhone? Uh, I'm not sure the KPI per hour, but on average a day, we're doing 75 to 100. Okay, so that's pretty good. Yep. So they're doing 75 to 100 dials a day. Right. Okay, so you said there's four or five guys in acquisitions. Mm -hmm. One of the acquisition guys is also doing part-time TC. Right, a little dispo. A little dispo. Yep. What else does the organization look like? Who else is in, is in the organization? That's it. We're still very bootstrap, ground floor, you know, get figuring it out as we go. 
Yeah. yeah. All right. So then, like, reflective on life. And I was sitting out, grabbing coffee, overlooking the lake. It's a beautiful morning. The steam's coming off of it. And uh, I'm doing my net worth statement. And I realize 90% of my net worth was from my apartments, which was about 10% of my time. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, what if I dedicated all of my resources, all of my team to just investing in apartments? And that following Monday when I got in the office, I said, guys, shut down the single family site. We're not doing it anymore. Whatever's in the pipeline, we'll see it through. But we're just going to focus on multifamily moving forward. And so um, acquisitions guy, you're not underwriting or, or reviewing houses and running comps on houses. You're underwriting apartments now. Project manager, you're not flipping houses. You're renovating apartments. And dispo guy, you're not selling houses. You're only asset managing apartments, our own portfolio. And here's the beauty of it. It was our own portfolio. So we were the buyer. You know, and we didn't have to worry about dispositions, but we did have to worry about operations and stuff. But you can control the deal when it's your own portfolio instead of just doing the transactional thing. And uh, um, over the next, you know, whatever it was, um, into 2018, about eight, six, eight months, picked up another 300 doors and just doubled your count, doubled my portfolio just because I focused. Um, And then. In, and then I, another deal came across my desk. This is the one that kind of put me on the map, I would say. Um, a 700-unit portfolio came across my desk, and um, it was a, a bunch of guys, or two investment bankers from New York owned it, but didn't have any experience in real estate, didn't have a partner who knew anything about real estate, and didn't interview a management company, right? So they buy all these doors because they're making millions of dollars on Wall Street, and uh, they buy all these apartments, or 700 units down in Georgia, and just get clobbered. And they realize this ship sinking, this ship, if, if their other job, their, their Wall Street job, is gonna sink also if they don't just burn this one, right? And yeah. then focus back on this opportunity or their main, their main uh, source of income. So they just let this go. And, and we came in, we made an offer, bought 700 doors for 10 million bucks. So $15,000 a door, but it needed another $20,000 a door in renovation across every unit. So it was a disaster, dude. Yeah. Um, I mean, we put $20 million into, or 15 to $20 million into renovations alone. Um, it's a big rental project. So, uh, and there's, there's more of a story, the, the private money lender who's gonna write the whole down payment check, which is about 4 million bucks, backed out the Friday before the Monday closing. And so we can get into all that stuff if you guys want to, but um, I had to raise 4 million bucks essentially in 48 hours. And I'd never raised that much money before, but I got it done. And I talked about it on social media and then I did like some posts about it and it went like viral. And I got like, all these people started reaching out and they're like, dude, didn't even know that you raised money that way. Didn't know that you syndicated real estate. Didn't know that you took on investors and you paid them in a fixed return plus equity and this other stuff. And like, let me know about the next one. Yeah. And then all of a sudden people started reaching out saying, hey, I want to invest with you. I want to sell you a deal. I want to buy a deal from you or I want to pay you to coach me. And like, I didn't intend to get into coaching. It was like, uh, just this tidal wave of people saying, dude, you need to coach people. You need to teach people this. And I was like, all right. And then I started putting together something called commercial empire, which is how to scale into apartments. Yeah. And uh, so I've been doing that for the past uh, three and a half years. And, uh, and that's cool. We partner up with a bunch of students and stuff, but, um, and it's helped me grow my portfolio, right? It helps me get into deals that I couldn't get into. Helps me raise money that maybe um, that I couldn't have raised before. It helps other people joint venture and get involved in deals. And so it's like, it's worked out pretty well until 
you realize some joint venture partners don't do what they said they're gonna do and all this other stuff, so. One night in the middle of the night, I watched Tony Robbins on an infomercial and I buy his, I felt like he was talking to me yeah. and I bought his course and I get it and I devoured it, Steve. Like I felt like he was talking to me and, and he gave me some fundamental shifts, like life happens for us, not to us. Instead of me being like, oh, why did I get dealt this hand? Mm -hmm. It was more like, oh God, universe, thank you for this. Because of that, I get to be me. Like right. if my parents spoiled me, maybe I'd be miserable doing drugs. But because of that life, it gave me it gave me the desire for more. So, oh my God, this all happened for me. And in a moment, my mind shifted. And I focused on solutions more and surrounding myself with the right people. And I realized, oh my God, that's why I'm doing better because I have these older friends. Let me get more of them. Yep. And it just really compounded me. But it did two things to me. One, it really helped me be less hosed up. That really technical term. <laughs> But number two, it made me realize, wow, Tony took my money mm -hmm. and he gave me information and it shifted my life I wanted in. Yeah. I think we'll talk later. You had that epiphany at a point in your life or else you wouldn't be in front of me right now interviewing 100%, me, right? 100%. So there's this epiphany like my life experience could help someone else. Right. So I said, I'm gonna go in the information business, right? Had no freaking clue, had no following. This is before the internet. Yeah. This, is, this is 1997, there wasn't even MySpace. There wasn't even dial up on AOL. <laughs> like, you know, it was, you didn't, you couldn't watch a video on AOL, mm -hmm. right? Right. It was a modem that, right? So um, I decided to go in it and I created a course and I was gonna do real estate, but I had only done a, you know, I did a bunch of real estate, but I was either gonna do real estate or cars. And I was going back and forth and I ended up picking cars first because that's how I made my first big chunk of money or consistent money to invest I made from flipping cars. Right. And I created a course called Motor Millions. I taught people how to flip cars through the classified ads. I, I, in fact, it's in the other room. Scott, if you get it, it's so funny. I got it, uh, it was in a box that we found about a month ago <laughs> from literally 1997. Like. This is literally the course I created in 1997. Oh man, amazing videos. VHS. VHS and all that, right? It, it's funny, <laughs> I'm gonna show this uh, during the challenge Tony and I are doing. But um, I created this course and then like all of us, and maybe you felt this way when you launched your podcast mm -hmm. and you do what you're doing, like I was so fired up by what I learned from Tony, right? So excited about what he shared. I kind of put everything else on hold. I went back to that 17 year old naive, I could just do it. Mm -hmm. But I was a little older then. So by the time I got done and realized I had to create books and put product in the warehouse and hire a company, hire a call center, I had to put $50,000 in prepaid media. It cost $100,000 to produce the infomercial. I'm 200, 250 grand in pretty much every dollar I had into something where I'm not Tony Robbins. And I remember my sister sat me down and she's like, we're so proud of you. You're the most successful person in our family but you went too far, you're going broke, you're gonna lose everything, stop this obsession. You're not an educator, you're not a teacher. You are great at cars, you are great at real estate. You're not Tony, you're not six foot seven dynamic, you don't have millions of dollars. And I just remember this gutted feeling of like, again, that same two voices I told you at 17, mm -hmm. the one was like, you're a freaking idiot. You just blew every dime that you saved up your entire life. You were broke as a kid, then you weren't, now you're broke again, you'll never do this, you're gonna lose everything. And then there was the other voice that said, you're meant for more. You could help people, you could share your story, you could teach what you did in real estate, teach what you, if you can come from nothing and make this, imagine what you could do for other people. And those two voices, again, were a millimeter apart, Steve. Yeah. And I remember literally in the little town where I grew up, the place I took a walk. I took a walk and these two voices and me had, had it out. And I, I would love to say no way I was quitting. I was a 
I was a, a hairline away from just going, hey, I should be lucky with the life I have. Yeah. I have real estate, I have a tow truck company, I have Dean Collision Center for God's sakes, right? I should just be grateful. I should, I should be grateful. Why, yeah. why am I so greedy, yeah. right? But something that they just wouldn't let me settle. That probably the day you decided to do a podcast or, mm -hmm. or all the things that you've accomplished in your life, man. You wouldn't be here if you didn't do great things in your life. And I just decided to go for it. And I was gonna do it and there was nobody gonna talk me out of it. And I launched Motor Millions and um, ups and downs and I figured out this digital world or this product world and it was different because I had to do an infomercial. There was no other way to sell. People were like, why'd you do an infomercial? It's like. What else was there? Like direct mail it. and infomercials and yellow pages. Like yeah, that was it. That's, that was it. Um, and I figured it out. And when I got momentum, by then I had done a lot more real estate deals, not thousands, maybe, maybe 30 deals my whole life. Um, and I launched a real estate course probably 20 years ago now, or mm -hmm. you know, 19 years ago, uh, called Think a Little Different. And I just laid out all the deals that I had Think done. Think a little different. Yeah, I, I laid out. Pretty the, close to that whole Apple. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I, I laid out, um, I laid out how I did the deals I had done mm -hmm. up until that point, and I and it became a monster hit. I went the car infomercial and car digital product did okay. That took me to a whole new level, and I think we went on to surely be the number one real estate educator for a decade. Yeah, um, we changed a lot of lives, and it was amazing. And during that journey, I became friends with Tony Robbins, the guy that changed my life, and all we ever talked about was self-education and selling courses and products to change people's lives. And over the last few years, I've merged into showing people what I've done in that space, right? I, yeah. I learned cars, then taught it. Real estate, then taught it. Now, how to sell what you know. Yeah, and I think that's so powerful. And, um, you know, we were kind of talking about this offline, but, uh, you know, for a lot of you guys that are watching this show, you guys uh, have heard me talk about, you know, I, I launched this podcast because I was at The Edge by Dean Graziosi, and there was this guy on stage Brandon Bashar is saying, people want to hear your story, people want to hear your story. And I, he's like, you know, you got to do one of three things. You either got to start a blog, you need to write a book, or you need to start a podcast. And in my head, I was like, I already have a blog, it sucks. <laughs> right? I already wrote a book, it's gone absolutely nowhere. Let's just start a podcast, see what happens. Right? Wow. And I remember it was Saturday when, Dean, uh, when, when Brandon was on stage saying it. Yep. I made a commitment on Facebook that following Wednesday, like, guys, tune in next week, I'm going to do my first wow. podcast. And what a great so, story. A week after that, I got my podcast, right? So I launched it and it was one of those things like, you know, let me just do 10 episodes. See how it goes. See how it goes. And if it sucks, nobody will know. Nobody will know. No like, one will know. You don't even tell anybody. Right. Yeah. Uh, but if it goes great, then, you know, this would be life changing. And so um, not only has it been life changing for myself, uh, but you just had, you know, uh, Pace was just in here. And, you know, um, I like to say I'm a small part of his story, right? Because, uh, and a few of others of our friends was that this podcast that started has helped a lot of people, but it would never have existed if it wasn't you on stage talking about personal development. So like the, the impacts, wow. uh, the just, waves that you create, it's yeah. just, it's just it's crazy. It's a ripple effect. That you, you don't know you where don't it stops. Stop. It does to do a million in a month, that is an incredible accomplishment, right? But what gets you from one to one a month might be different than what gets you to two a month. What gets you to two a month, it gets you to four million a month are different. So we've had a lot of different people on the show that I think a lot of those key takeaways will help someone get to potentially a million dollars a month, right? What would you say are like the three to five or more biggest levers to get from 1 million a month to having your best month ever at 4 million? I think the single most important thing is you can't do it yourself. Mm -hmm. 
So it's the people around you. You know, that's the most valuable thing. If you find great people mm -hmm. and you help them grow and level up with you, it's a natural byproduct of success, right? Right. Um, we have quite a few strong leaders in our company and I have to help them elevate. I have to help them grow. Some of them need to grow in their own companies. So if we don't figure out a way to make that happen, mm -hmm. we're gonna lose them. Right. And with that, we're naturally just elevating, um, which is cool. Yeah. Um, I think number two, it's not necessarily any sort of channel on sales or anything like that. It's just getting really good at what you do. Mm -hmm. You can succeed in any channel. Yeah. Whether you're calling, which is still, you know, um, probably our greatest skill set. That's what I initially learned, right? That's what I became an expert in. To whatever channel you want to do. Mm -hmm. I know guys that are doing it every single one at that level. It's just getting really, really good at that one thing to where you're better than everyone else. And then you focus on the next mm -hmm. and the next and the next. And then you just get good at multiple things. And that helps you get there. But if you let the gas off any one of them, like we have in one of our channels, and mm -hmm. our second top competitor is taking all that business from us. Yeah. And he's really, really good at what he does, but that's happened because we let off that gas. Right. So we're gonna now shift and go back. But it's just staying at that highest level in whatever you're doing. And I yep. think it comes down to the quality of people you have. Any other major levers? I think the single most important thing, uh, second, I guess, behind that is just having a really, really good coach mm -hmm. or a consultant team that helps you identify what you're not doing right or wrong. And then, you know, putting gas on what you're doing right, stepping back, changing what you're doing wrong and, and adjusting it. And that uh, objective outside view is sometimes what you need. Yeah. Because you have this subjective lens and many times you don't actually see mm -hmm. You have blind spots. Right. And if somebody else can sit there, and you, for you it would be obvious, like, oh, man, dude, you're missing this. And like, oh, <laughs> really? Yeah. It's like that just changed their whole year. Yeah. So having that objective outside perspective is just invaluable. So I want to dive deeper into each of these three because it's easy to say hire great people, right? Mm -hmm. It's easy to say that. And right now we are experiencing, what was it, the great resignation. We are. Right. So not only is it difficult to hire quality people, it's harder today than it's ever been, as far as in my experience, to hire great people. Mm -hmm. So how are you hiring great people? And just again, for perspective, everybody else, like I've got to <laughs> interact with those people. Mm -hmm. When he has great people, he's not talking like, hey, these are like high quality people. Like these are professionals that have had high success in different careers. You're not mm -hmm. taking this other guy that just graduated college or whatever, like mm -hmm. these have, have a successful track record. Yeah. So how do you, A, well, I guess the first one, how, do you, how are you attracting these people? Yeah. I guess it first starts with leveling up yourself. Mm -hmm. um, I grew up with a very strict, um, subjective view of the world. I probably read 150 self-help books Mm -hmm. I'm like 18 to 23, which completely changed my perspective of life. Yeah. I mean, the amount of growth I went through is just, was humbling. Mm -hmm. I realized I knew nothing about life. You're doing that while going um, through college. Yeah. Which is very unusual behavior. College just opened my mind. Yeah. Um, reading books that taught me the opposite of what 
I believed was reality just mm -hmm. really expanded my mind to the idea of perhaps I could be wrong, perhaps I'm off, you know? Mm -hmm. um, I need to always look at all perspectives and understand that I may be completely missing something. Yeah. And that I can never be perfect. Right. So I just know that if I don't keep an open mind, I'll usually be humbled very quickly. <laughs> <laughs> and even if I do, I still get humbled. Yeah. So when you change your mindset mm -hmm. and you try to grow and level up, um, it then allows you to attract those same kind of people. Right. So I think you first have to work on yourself. Yeah. You know, if you're someone that's got a big ego, it's difficult for you to take any kind of constructive criticism. You know, how are you going to attract those kind of people to work for you? Right. I think it starts, it starts with working on yourself. Yeah. Number one, grow. When you grow, um, it'll allow you to attract those same kind of people. Because mm -hmm. I mean, I wouldn't want to work for someone who's got a big ego, who's not going to try to help me grow and elevate and yeah. become better and, and ride along with them. Right. And then once you do that and you start to level up and grow, I think you then look at it from their perspective. You know, if I was working with you, um, what would I want? Well, the first thing we started off was we don't have a PTO policy. You can take as much time as you off as you want. Yeah. You don't have to show up to work if you don't want to. Work from home. You know, if you want to sleep in because you had a rough night sleeping for whatever reason, well, then sleep in. Yeah. Show up to work at noon or don't. Um, all we really care about in the end is getting the job done. Right. So I think having that kind of mindset, you know, like what would I want? Mm -hmm. You know, I'd want freedom to do what I want to do, work when I feel like I want to work. And all that really matters in the end is that you get the results, right? Right. Why does it matter if you work eight to five or 10 to seven mm -hmm. or at midnight? You know, if you can just get your work done, it doesn't matter. You don't have to correspond with anyone else. It shouldn't matter, right? Right. Corporate America is the opposite. When I was in corporate America, I mean, they're very strict. These are the rules, punch in, this, that. It was just horrible. Like, I was like, why would I ever want to exist in this, you know, industrial revolution style yeah. existence? It's just miserable. Um, you're like a drone, right? So yeah. I, I just thought, well, what would I want? Mm -hmm. And what would make me happy? And then next is set your goals to align with your people's goals. We win together or we lose together. And we elevate and we gain property and we build assets and we change our lives together. Yeah. And I think when you do that, um, people are excited because it doesn't really, like a small amount of companies today do that. Is there something you're doing as far as, um, you know, channels can be our next thing, but I look at recruiting, it still sells and KPIs and everything mm -hmm. else, and channels and marketing, whatever. Mm -hmm. What is there any like particular methodologies in, in finding these people, identifying these people? Because, you know, what we found in the past is the best people have jobs. Mm -hmm. The best people aren't looking for jobs. So is there anything particular you're doing to find the best qualified applicants that might not even be looking for a job right now? Yeah, we're always proactively reaching out. There's mm -hmm. many candidates we talk to every couple months. Yeah. And they're happy at this point. But it doesn't hurt knowing you have a second option if you ever do unhappy and it'd be a good culture and it'd be a good fit. Mm -hmm. And we just keep up that relationship. Sometimes it's a year later. They give us a call and they go, oh, yeah, I can't believe it. We just got a new CEO and they changed this and it's gonna be miserable now. We don't wanna work in this environment anymore. This isn't who we are. Mm -hmm. You know, are you guys still hiring for that role? Well, we are now. 
<laughs> so, so if someone's awesome, we, we'll make a job for them always. Is this LinkedIn, Facebook? Every channel. Everything. Everything. Yeah, everything works. Got it. Um, so, yeah. um, so like, what kind of revenue are we really talking about if someone's like doing maybe their first one? Yeah. Okay. So I want to give a low end and then a high end, if mm -hmm. that's okay. Yeah. So average rates in America today is $4,500 a month to live in an assisted living home. Per resident. Per resident. Yep, 4,500. So depending on where you live in the country, that totally varies, but mm -hmm. that's average rates. You're allowed to have anywhere between six and 16 residents in the home. Mm -hmm. So when I say single family, a lot of people think a three bed, two bath. Right. Yes, that's a single family, but also a seven bed, five bath is also a single family. Mm -hmm. So we have to think differently when I'm saying that word, right? right? So in Arizona, we're allowed to have 10 residents in a home. So our homes, other than the one we purchased, but the other two, they didn't start that way. We had to convert them to become 10 bedroom, 10 bath homes. Yeah. Um, but in that case, 4,500 times 10 seniors, 45,000 coming in gross. You're, so 10 bedrooms, 10 baths, so they all have their own bathrooms? One of the homes has nine bathrooms and one has 10. So wow. yes. Okay. The more private, private you can do, the more you can get oh, per resident. Oh, it's a premium. Yeah. Got yeah. it. So, um, so yeah, so 45 coming in, your expenses are pretty high because this is 24 seven for these senior medication mm -hmm. management, three meals a day, 24 seven caregivers on staff, you know, activities, food, cable, internet, everything. So let's call it- Because each one has like their own TV and their own cable. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah, the, we're like, we're giving them everything and anything that they want. They're paying a heavy fee to live in the home. They should really be living out their golden years in the best way possible. Mm -hmm. um, so let's say 30 grand in expenses. And then your debt service or mortgage, maybe 5,000, right? In most parts of the country, you can still get a pretty nice home for five grand a month. That's giving you $10,000 on that home every single month, take home as the owner. Mm -hmm. That's after you've paid all your expenses, everything. Including the caregivers? Correct. The utilities? Yeah. So we're talking even, net. Even vacancies, everything baked yeah. into that. Yeah, net. So that's kind of your average home. In certain states, Texas, uh, Ohio, Illinois, you're allowed to have 16 residents in a home. And what we teach in our training is to never do average, do above average. Mm -hmm. So if 4,500 is the average, we have plenty of students all across the country who are getting six, seven, eight thousand dollars $8,000 a month per resident because their homes are very luxurious. Is that covered by the family or by the uh, medical, by the government? Like that's a, a significant sum. It is. Typically private pay, it's mm. almost always the seniors using their cash, their IRAs, they sold their home and are using those funds or their adult children are paying for mm. it, um, which is also something to consider because a lot of people are not prepared for this. The silver tsunami's coming, mm -hmm. the baby boomers are coming, and if you don't have a plan for your loved one, that's pretty scary. Like, you got to figure this out. Um, so let's say there it's a 16 or, or a 15 bedroom home for easy math, 7,000 times 15, that's 105,000 coming in gross, but our expenses are going to go up. Maybe they're not 30, maybe they're 50. Yeah, it's this. not proportionally going up. It's, it's it, going, it, it's, it's going gonna, up, but not by the same ratios. Correct. Because this is a luxury home. Also there's five more residents. So mm -hmm. we need to think of more food, more care, more everything really. So 105 minus 50, and let's say the debt service, this is a 15 bedroom home. Let's say it's 15 grand a month. That's still leaving you with $40,000 take yeah. home. So when we say one of these beats a 50 unit apartment, that's what I mean because each apartment, you're maybe getting you know a couple hundred bucks, maybe a thousand bucks, but that's not always the take home, right? Mm -hmm. That's gross. 
Exactly. Yeah. So it definitely beats it. We have a guy in Jersey who those are exactly his numbers. He's got 15 residents, seven grand a month. He brings in 40 grand a month. Yeah. Pretty cool. So this is a different model than, for example, maybe going to buy a franchise. Yeah. I was, uh, I heard, I was talking to one of my agents yesterday, one of the clients, you know, they have a, a Mexican fast food chain. Yeah. And they make 40, 50 grand a month. I was like, wow, that's a lot of money for just like, uh, you know, burritos and stuff. But, <laughs> You it know, must be good burrito. <laughs> I wouldn't go that far. It's a high volume <laughs> business. Um, but this is just a different direction if you wanted to like, I mean, you can't do a Starbucks, but if you were doing, I think like maybe a coffee bean you can franchise, right? Yeah. This would be like a French buying a franchise. Uh, is there a lot of owner involvement in these or is this like, like if you buy like a 7-Eleven franchise, yeah. you're pretty involved. Yeah. Right? Is this a situation where you're buying like a convenience store franchise or is this a situation where you're buying and you're an owner but not an operator? Okay, so we set it up that you own and operate the real estate and the business, mm -hmm. but you're still hiring a licensed administrator, which in real estate world, we'll call that the property manager. It's a medical license that they have through the state so they can care for the residents, they can do intake with the residents, but typically they're doing like, you know, touring with the families. They might be in charge of filling the beds, the marketing, hiring and firing caregivers, payroll, all sorts of different stuff. They're your hands-on go-to person. So how we teach and train and how we run this is one phone call a week with that person. Of course they can call in emergencies. Oh yeah. But one set phone call a week. And then I try to only visit the homes like every other month. Mm -hmm. I don't want to be hands-on. I don't want to be working there. There are plenty of people who do this hands-on, and you absolutely can, but you also don't have to, and that's Got how it. I like to teach to set it up as more of a active, right? Passive and active, mm -hmm. but <laughs> a I little like bit. I don't want to say it's completely passive because right. it's not, you know? Yeah. Well, it's just like having a rental. Yeah. It's passive, but is it? But is it? Yeah. Exactly. Got it. Okay, so then uh, let's... So you guys both feel, not know... Mm -hmm but right. feel like interest rates are going to go down in mm -hmm. the next year or two. You don't think it's. Yeah. So like in, in all fairness, I think that what is happening right now to interest rates is that there is nobody wanting to purchase mortgage backed securities as an investment long term because there is a high likelihood that they'll be bringing rates down. And that's right. a very, very strong indication for people that are watching the market that mm -hmm. says, Hmm, like, it, like when you're deciding on making a, an educated guess, because this is like what we do when we're investing, right? We're mm -hmm. making the best hedged guesses. But like if you know that investors don't want to buy, the only customer is the U.S. government at this mm -hmm. moment. Rates are going to be super volatile like we've seen. So yeah. and. Um, but you think that there are people that are wanting to buy mortgage backed securities or are waiting because they think the interest rates are going to be lower? Yeah, like once the market is more stable, you have more investors that want to enter into the market. The problem is that a return on a, on a mortgage is like three years of payments. Mm -hmm. Like it sucks right now for most mortgage companies, right? A lot of mortgage companies like are in a really unique position. It's very expensive right now to get the lowest rate possible. If they sell the lowest rate possible at the peak of the market, there's a high likelihood in 18 months those people are going to refinance, which means all of those mortgage companies are anticipating huge losses. Mm -hmm. And like, and the same thing with like Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, Ginny Mae, they aren't like, so what happens in mortgages too is that they release only so many interest rates. 
so many products and mm -hmm. they give you so much yield for those products. And right now they're being very stingy with those things because all of the agencies also know that there is a high likelihood of them bringing interest rates down. And so mortgages right now are probably the most expensive I've seen in my career. Yeah. Not the highest interest rates I've seen in my career, but the right. most expensive. Um, Can you elaborate the difference between expensive and rate? Yeah. So like I, I have worked in the industry since 2002. So interest rates at that time were anywhere between like seven and 9%. And so I got to see them come down from there to like five and a quarter was like historically low rates. Um, and then I've seen it trail all the way down and a mortgage back then, I mean, wasn't close to $300,000. Like it just wasn't. Uh, mm -hmm. And you didn't have to pay as expensive of a cost. Like, I mean, it's not unheard of to see uh, loan estimates with one to two and a half points, like discount points right now to get a competitive rate. Got it. And so that's what I meant by like, like the loan amounts are greater. The cost to get that interest rate is higher. And in general, interest rates at 6% are not historically low anymore. Got it. So um, you made the comment that it seems like the industry is freaking out more yes. than buyers and sellers. Yes. So um, I think I mean, you're talking to buyers every day. What are you know your buyers telling you when they're when they're house shopping? Uh, we've seen a very large increase in cancellations because people are very uncomfortable with the monthly payments. It's a sticker shock. We deal with lots of buyers, um, and and but I will definitely say that you know like there's a lot of misinformation. From real estate agents. I think a lot of misinformation is probably an understatement, but continue. <laughs> I know. And it's hard because like consumers get informed by what they see online, like mm -hmm. via the news. Like there was this headline that was so annoying. It circulated like 20 times. Interest rates plummet to 5.3%, lowest drop in like 20 years or whatever it said. And I'm like, you guys, yeah, because two weeks ago in two days, interest rates were like 6.625%. And so, yes, that is a steep decline. But guess what? That 5.3% interest rate that the news reported is already one week old based on the Freddie Mac interest rate survey, and it's no longer plummeted. And you just can't base your facts on that. And like most real estate agents don't know what's going on. Like I talk to someone today and they're like, Lizzie, we're headed for a crash. Values are going down. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm like, values are not going down. Well, how can you tell me? I, I, this house is selling for under appraised value. And just so you know, guys, seasonally, there are times of the year when homes will not uh, like appraise. And there's homes times like, so for instance, I know March and May are the most difficult times for a home to appraise because the preceding six months are the slowest times in real estate. Right. It's like you get Christmas, January, February, and that's what they base home values on. But then you have people who are willing to pay higher prices then because there's more competition and that's market price. Right. So market price is what somebody's willing to pay today. Now, a home might be worth three hundred and ninety thousand, which is in this case is what happened. Uh, but that home sold for three sixty. It was listed for three seventy. Obviously, that real estate agent didn't list the house for three ninety. Again, like I said, there's that huge variance between opinions of value. It's like the appraiser and the real estate agent looked at the same information and they didn't sell it for three ninety. Right mm -hmm. now, that buyer didn't lose thirty thousand dollars in equity. You know what I mean? Neither yeah. did that seller. They didn't even know they had that equity. Well, I think what the sellers are experiencing and what the realtors are experiencing is that we have seen a shift. So again, since last year. We have seen the traditional home buyers pull out or be pushed out essentially pushed out, by yeah. these investors, by a lot of institutions. Um, you've got the 
institutional flip investor as well, the Open Doors Offer Pads, and of course Zillow before they pulled out as well. So you had these corporations that were willing to pay significantly more than the than the consumer. So they started driving the bus, okay, mm -hmm. in a sense of this price appreciation. That's where the risk came in. So the market, um, as of today, you know, flash forward to the last uh, technically four months, but really becoming extremely noticeable in the last four weeks because institutions, as the interest rates pushed out more and more traditional home buyers, the institutions and the cash investors were the ones in control. And when they realized it, they pulled out, waiting for prices to come down. And some of these institutions even pulled out of their escrows, just relinquished their earnest money and said, we're going to sit on the sidelines for a while and see how this all plays out. So the 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 funds that were buying these properties, you're saying even as yeah. four months ago, they were starting to see, oh, crap, we're the ones. Yeah buying all the houses, we, we the need to push, pull back. They were the ones, well, we've been telling them this for a year, that they are the ones pushing the prices up. Mm -hmm. I mean, who would have thought that in Greater Phoenix, in the latter half, in the slowest period of time, the, the last half of the year is typically a decline in demand. From the peak, which usually hits us right around March, April, May, and what's under contract all the way to December, it's a gradual decline. Well, right after June, all of a sudden, Zillow and Open Door decided to have a clash of the titans in Greater Phoenix, pushing prices up, saying we're going to take over the market, and then they, then they got to win. Whoever won got to take the trophy of most losses mm -hmm. in 2021, yeah. which I believe Open Door won that for the year of 2021, and Zillow won for the, their entire career of flipping from 2018. <laughs> but anyhow, aside from that. The thing is that 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 created a a perception that demand was just going crazy. But what happened is those companies had to sell to guess who? Somebody on the other side because they're not holding properties. Right. And when the the general population is pushed out, guess who they were selling to? Institutions. And so when institutions pulled out, they are now having to turn their attention them and the builders are now having to turn back to the same people that they pushed out and kicked to the curb for the last year or so, yeah. saying, hey, we'd really like you to come back now. And what if we pay down your interest rate? What if we pay your closing costs? I mean, this is actually the time where you got that 3% down FHA buyer that needs a little bit of help. Mm -hmm. You can walk them down a runway right now and auction them off because they are, they're golden. So... <laughs>